Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. The National Capital Commission is in the process of renaming the Sir John A. McDonald Parkway. In Ottawa, three city of Ottawa council members proposed the name change and the spread of reconciliation with Indigenous peoples because MacDonald had authorized the creation of residential schools when he served as Canada's first Prime Minister in the 1880s. The National Capital Commission announced this past Thursday the new name of the parkway will be Indigenous and the name will be made public on September the 30th. That's the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, of course. Chief Cadmus DeLorme joins us. He's the chief of Cowess's First Nation in Saskatchewan, and of course, is, is at Cowess's in 2021. The ground radar discovered what are believed to be 751 unmarked graves at the site of the former Marival Indian Residential School, which operated from 1899 to 1997. Chief DeLorme, how are you today? Good afternoon, Roy. I'm fine. Good Thanks to, for asking. Yeah, good to have you with us. Just uh, generically, what are your thoughts immediately on the renaming of the Sir John A. Macdonald Expressway in Ottawa? Thank you, Roy. Uh, reconciliation is here, and reconciliation only comes uh, with uncomfortable conversations. And, you know, as proud Canadians, we're, we're proud of uh, being a G7 country, being, being a developed country, a country dreamers can, can build on. But we also inherited a past, both uh, new Canadians, generational Canadians. And reconciliation can only come, Roy, once we first accept and understand the truth. And you know, hopefully this direction will allow Canadians to discover the truth maybe they have not known before. What are your thoughts on uh, other roads, on buildings, universities, government agencies, and schools which are named after historical figures who have a past, which you just mentioned, which today is seen as racist, exclusionary, but at the time was not? Where's what do we do about all of these places, Chief, that have been named after these historic Canadian figures? Mm -hmm. uh, our country was built on a Western worldview perspective, which which is great. I, I'm a very proud Canadian Saskatchewanian. I'm also a very proud Indigenous person. And the Western worldview, I got my master's degree. I got an undergrad. I I, I go to Costco. I do my. I, I I love the Western worldview. You know that that this country provides. But we have a missed opportunity of Indigenous worldview. And, and only till now, it's actually starting to really be welcomed in. The challenge is, is the pie isn't getting bigger. So where are we able to welcome in Indigenous worldview? If, if it's using more um, language uh, of, of, of historic or, or contemporary, for, and there are many Indigenous worldviews in this country, so we can't just paint the picture as one generic one. So I, I do believe the welcoming in, Roy, is going to help make this country even stronger than what it is today. So in the First Nations communities, yours and others across Canada, 
when this kind of decision is made, like the one that's been made by the National Capital Commission, proposed by three Ottawa City Council members, does that resonate positively across the country with Indigenous people? Roy, it, it sets us in the right direction. I, I'm going to read a quote just to kind of let the listeners understand why this statue or the name of Sir John A. Macdonald that we're talking about and other means it is statues. I, I'm not here to debate it. I, I, I'm here to educate. I want to read a really quick quote that, that Sir John A. Macdonald said in the House of Commons in 1879. When the school is on the reserve, the child lives with its parents who are savages. And though he may learn to read and write, his habits and training and mode of thought are Indian. He is simply a savage who can read and write. It has been strongly impressed upon myself as head of the department that Indian children should be withdrawn as much as possible from the parental influence. And the only way to do that would be to put them in central training industrial schools where they'll acquire the habits and modes and thought of white men. Roy, when, when there was quotes made like that in 1879 for the betterment of the country of that day, which they thought, today we, we have a loss of control in Indigenous communities, Indigenous nations, Indigenous people living in urban settings. We don't want pity. We don't want anybody to feel sorry for us. We just want to make sure that our worldview is respected. And so in the communities, renaming and, and addressing wrongs and, and things that may have been right at one time, but we know are wrong today, is truly healing for the Indigenous nations and communities and people. But it's also Canada showing reconciliation, you know, is happening. Yeah. When you read that quote, I was thinking, how did anybody accept that then? <laughs> really? I mean, how did anybody who was thinking and had an understanding of, greater understanding of people, how did anybody accept that? And I, I know they did because we saw what happened. But it's, it, you yeah. go back and you wonder, and we can do this at different times in history, we can wonder why people did what they did and, and did, it, did so collectively. But when you read that, I, I, just, I, I just thought, how, how do you accept that? Even then, 1800s, no way. Yeah, Roy, we, we, you know, the Indian Act of 1876 had one, one purpose, to, to imprison the minds of Indigenous people. And the hope was that there would be no, um, you know, Indigenous uh, by 1930, and that the, uh, the Indians, as, as it's termed, termed in the Indian Act, would, would amalgamate and, and disappear into Canadian society. The residential school was to brainwash. And, you know, the language, the vertical image. And this is history, right? Like, we inherited this, but that's why reconciliation is so important today because my six-year-old daughter wants to be raised and, and have dreams just like every other six-year-old six-year-old daughter. But because my daughter's Indigenous, my wife and I have to try twice as hard today. So that's why it's so important that, you know, we understand these little wee nudge moves about renaming roads. There are bigger and more, you know, that lead to what reconciliation means to all of us as Canadians. Yeah. We also, Chief, I think really, again, just taking into consideration what you said in the last two or three minutes, is we need to do a far better job of teaching history in our schools, which we don't. There's no history curriculum in, in the school system, certainly the high school system, in a number of provinces. I think in the last count it was five or six provinces have no specific history, Canadian history curriculum, and it should be there. It has to be there. 
It, it is the driver. You know, our education system is our driver of hope. Uh, it, it's delayed gratification because what we teach today, our next generation are going to implement. And our, our schools are getting better. Like there are provinces, I, I do believe, you know, there are provinces that, that um, are thinking about it, but don't have a mandatory native studies or indigenous studies. Uh, higher learning institutions, universities, colleges, and trades are teaching more indigenous. The challenge also to add on to that, Roy, is the baby boomer generation, Generation X, and Generation Y. Uh, there's no mandatory Indigenous Studies class coming to those generations, and sometimes we have already did our higher learning in our elementary school, so we also have to understand that the most important table of discussion in this country for reconciliation is our kitchen table. Are we asking the right question? I'm going to scrap the carbon tax to lower the cost of gas, heat, groceries, and everything else. So far, the carbon tax has not worked. Everything we've, Trudeau told us about his tax has been false. Pierre Polyev with us last weekend uh, on the program, the Conservative Party leader of Canada, on the carbon tax. We're going to talk carbon tax uh, a little bit here, along with what's going to be happening with the price of gasoline and diesel with our good friend, Dan McTagg, the president of Canadians for affordable energy, increasingly unaffordable energy is perhaps how we should phrase that. It's too bad. Eh? It's so unnecessary, isn't it, Dan? Avoidably unaffordable. Um, and, and yes, uh, it could be completely uh, removed in terms of high prices were not for uh, the policies of the uh, Trudeau NDP government. Yeah, that's what it is, actually. Um, just before we talk about, and I, I'm going to read to our listeners, share with our listeners the email that I received from our Manitoba listener, and you have a copy of that, although I was obtaining his name and information confidentially. Um, I just talking to Eric Cam, professor at, um, at uh, Toronto Metropolitan University, and I mentioned to him that when you were on the air with us a couple of weeks ago, you mentioned that you're expecting... The price of gasoline by May and June, or May or June, to reach again two dollars per liter, and diesel two sixty. You still with that? I am very much so, and uh, I think uh, we're starting to see other people slowly but surely creep into the idea that uh, it's not just a casual, you know, throw at any given number. Look, I predicted last summer it would be two dollars a liter back in twenty twenty one. You and I talked about that. In fact, I said yes, we did well before. So, look, uh, we are. Uh, quickly approaching uh, a point where I think uh, the world is deciding and Canadians are going to have to make up their minds as to whether or not they want to continue to prevent a nation blessed with an abundance of energy from getting those energy products to market and uh, as a result hurting itself, not just with a weaker Canadian dollar. That's uh, adding 30% to the cost of everything. That's the weakening of the purchase power. But also tolerating taxes, which have absolutely nothing to do with curbing any type of emissions, but in fact are a slush fund for the federal government to spend uh, on its uh, green grifting friends. So let me read the email that I received from Tom in Manitoba. Good morning, Roy. I just received my carbon tax rebate check and also read my latest natural gas heating bill. The heating charge for December was $526. The carbon tax component was $96. And my three-month rebate check came to $104. And there is still the hidden portion of the tax in my gasoline, grocery store, drugstore, clothing store, etc., etc., purchases. In my humble opinion, as a senior citizen on a rather limited income, 
The carbon tax is just as insidious to the economy as plastic pollution is to the environment, and probably just as damaging. What do your experts think of the foregoing statement and my further opinion that the present inflation problem is caused at least 20% by the carbon tax, 40% by the federal reckless spending, and 20% by supply chain issues? That's from Tom in Manitoba. His view, his experience, his question. How do you answer, Dan? Well, he's right on. Um, and I will delve into the area that I'm somewhat familiar with. In fact, I'm quite familiar with, and that's the effect of artificially high energy prices, uh, which wouldn't be the case internationally or in Canada if a nation with a third or largest reserves actually provided the opportunity to the rest of the world to get natural gas and oil to the rest of the world. It's a political decision not to do it. It is an economic impact on all of us because we are not. And to make matters more important for Tom and, and for others, this is a government that is going to triple that tax. That $96 will eventually become $300. The carbon rebate, uh, what I call, of course, the bait and switch or the, you know, the shell game, will not cover all the aforementioned other associated increases in costs. It is going to drive uh, the cost of living to unprecedented levels. And here's what gets me in all of this, Roy. You have a Bank of Canada that says we don't want inflation above 2%, but is willing to tolerate a carbon tax of 17 cents a litre come April 1st for most provinces, which on $1.50 for a litre of gasoline, according to my math, is more than 12 to 15%. And that will soon be 30 to 40%. Anybody who has to look at the inflation rate, the reason inflation went down last month, we saw the headlines this week, was because of, drum roll please, gasoline prices dropping. So anybody who thinks there's no connection between energy, the cost of energy, and what happens when uh, you have politicians in Ottawa driving up the price artificially, arbitrarily, and damaging uh, the purchase power of everyone, the effects are extraordinarily damaging to people like Tom, and I, I guess a good number, I would say the majority of Canadians, and they need to make the connection between carbon taxes, carbon policies, green policies, and the destruction, I think, of uh, what is the Canadian dream, uh, the ability to make ends meet. Yeah, we're seeing what's going on in Europe. Europe has a tremendous energy deficit, and it's of their own creator. It's their, it's their own creation. And now they're trying to uh, resolve it, and they're issuing additional licenses for natural gas exploration. Germany's reopening coal mines. We've seen what's been going on there. But the argument continues to be made, Dan, and by our federal government and those who support the point of view that these carbon tax hikes are necessary to slow down climate change. You you say what? They're slowing down the Canadian economy. They're slowing down the Canadian dream. What they're not doing is dropping or eliminating carbon emissions. It's certainly not doing anything for China, for India, for Indonesia, uh, for South Korea, any of those countries. Uh, and of course, now our new, our, our latest friends, Japan and Germany, who are saying, listen, Canada, we'd love to buy some LNG which now, of course, even the European Union has had to admit is, is, is far better in terms of carbon uh, emissions than anything else. And so this is uh, a little bizarre that people talk this way when they know, when they look around them, that the country is really sinking. And it is sinking because it doesn't have the financial mean, means to pay for the kind of things that these guys are talking about. Look, if you want to give millions and billions of dollars away to automotive companies to buy EVs, to buy electric vehicles, to build electric vehicles, to, uh, you know, to, uh, as it were, you know, fund uh, charging stations, uh, give consumers who otherwise wouldn't buy them, you know, a few thousand bucks 
based on other people's incomes, that's fine. But when it comes down to it, practically speaking, for a country as, as cold and as energy intensive as ours, we should be celebrating our hydrocarbon. Yes, we should. Yes, we should. Not uh, depleting it and depleting the, uh, the livelihood. The world the clearly needs it. That's why the Chancellor of Germany and the Prime Minister yeah. of Japan came to this country individually over the last six months. And what are they, what happens? They get a pat on the butt and they're sent home with a, well, you know, we'll do what we can, but we have to take care of the uh, the issues with climate yep. and decarbonization. That's what the Prime Minister of Japan took home with him. That's what Olaf Scholz, the Chancellor of Germany, took home with him. That's not why they came. And Canadians are taking home higher food prices. There is yeah. a So let me ask you this. Uh, when, when, we look at, when we look every, at... Every level of it. Let me look at Tom's email. I just received my carbon tax rebate check and also read my latest natural gas heating bill. The heating charge for December was $526. Let that sink in. $526. The carbon tax component was $96, and my three-month rebate check came to $104. And there's still the hidden portion of the tax on my gasoline, grocery store, drugstore, clothing store, etc., etc., purchases. Put that together for us. What are, what are you hearing when I read that? <laughs> You're hearing there is that everyone understands that the, the carbon rebate is not going to cover the actual uh, cost rise that it is causing. No matter what they say. No matter what they say, it is an absolute fundamental lie. Forget what the, prime, uh, the PBO has said, the Parliamentary Budget Officer. Uh, this is going to increasingly add to the burden of Canadians. And make no mistake, the Bank of Canada is only too happy to see that carbon tax create the kind of uh, you know, inflation that is going to lead them to drive up interest rates even higher. And there is a connection, perhaps not as Dan, as the food. where's the tipping point for people who are struggling now? You know, I keep remembering reading, and I've read these articles on the air and in depth, not over the last couple of years, but maybe two or three years ago I did. I did a lot of research on what was going on in the UK. They had a tremendous issue with uh, the cost of energy. And it was becoming totally unaffordable for people who were on the lower end of the economic scale. So what you had, you had this, the, the reality of seniors in the UK riding buses all day so they could be someplace where it was warm. They couldn't afford to heat their homes, so they rode the buses all day. Well, maybe think, still do. Yeah, and they do. And it's worse this year than it was last year. Okay. Now, make no mistake. I think the numbers that we're seeing, they're showing up. Uh, the pollsters are starting to demonstrate. Justin Trudeau's numbers are tanking. His party is in trouble. I have spoken to a number of older liberals, not necessarily MPs. Yeah. We're saying very much the same thing. Uh, this, uh, this policy uh, has come at the absolute wrong time. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Let's get to the economy. That's the number two issue in this country. If you talk to uh, many of the pollsters, people say health care is number one for them. But the inflationary pressure is easing, we hear. But the Bank of Canada nevertheless expected to raise its interest rates one more time next week. After that, well, will Canada experience recessionary pressure 
Well, the balance of the calendar year, Professor Eric Cam is back with us, Professor of Macroeconomics at Metropolitan University in Toronto, or Toronto Metropolitan University. Professor, thank you very much. No surprise here, eh? It's not a surprise at all. It's the Bank of Canada telling the Canadian population that this inflationary spiral upward is not over, and it may not even be far from over. And I think there's a little bit of um, method to this madness. I think what the bank is doing is it's making rumblings about, you know, we're going to raise it 0.25 by way of telling people that through that announcement effect, they hope that it even brings down spending a little bit further. Because one thing the bank probably didn't count on, Roy, was the population of this country being as um, smart and as cognizant as they are of what's going on. They can say that inflation is is starting to trend in the right way. But let's be honest, what really has fallen? The only thing that's fallen are gas prices. And sadly, the Bank of Canada is to gas prices what the banjo is to classical music. They have no control over that. So the things that really matter to Canadians, like food, like their mortgage, like rent, are still going up and they're going up far too fast. So I think this is the Bank of Canada kind of admitting we are not done yet, but maybe if we announce that we're not done yet, that'll further decrease spending and get us closer to the goal. So I'm trying to imagine Beethoven's fifth on the banjo or an orchestra of banjos, how that would sound. But setting that aside... Uh, We're going to be talking gas prices, gasoline prices, in just a few minutes with Dan McTagg. And Dan has told us recently, Professor, that we're expected or should expect gasoline prices to hit $2 a liter by May or June and diesel $2.60 a liter. And that's going to impact on all of us because, as we know, trucks use diesel and trucks deliver everything that we have. But do you have a sense? Is there a sense, a macroeconomic sense, that the economy is picking up steam again? Or is that just wishful thinking? I don't think the economy is picking up steam at all. And in fact, there are no macro indicators that show we're picking up steam. What we are is we are still marginally positive in terms of the rate of growth of the gross domestic product. So in terms of you know that, that measure of goods and services that our country is able to produce, we're still on the right side of the Mendoza line, and we'd like to keep it that way. But as you and I discussed last week, inflation eventually creeps its its ugly head into everything. And the one market it hasn't creeped its head into, Roy, is the labor market. And mm-hmm. so they're trying to do the knife's edge thing. They're trying to decrease spending to decrease prices, but not so much that they decrease it to the point where consumption and investment fall to such a degree that gross domestic product starts to tumble and put us into a recession. And so that's really, in a nutshell, what the bank is trying to do. They're trying to find that very sensitive level of spending where we still have positive GDP, but prices start to come down. And so that's the line that they're trying to hit, and they're trying to hit it the only way they know, and that is through interest rate increases. But since you said it, If the price of gas does go up to that extent, then you can rest assured they will completely lose, completely lose their credibility with the people of this country who are asking for relief. And if the one thing that they found relief goes back up to ridiculous levels, we're just at ground zero again. 
That's what Mr. McTagg told us, and I'm confident he'll repeat that in just a few minutes' time. What should we be then looking for for the balance of the year? And by the way, given the bank's recent record as far as its predictions for uh, what's necessary with interest rates is concerned, how confident should we be that the Bank of Canada knows what it's doing? You know, it's funny. You would think that my answer is they have no clue, but they do have a clue. Because I think the Bank of Canada in and of itself is actually pretty good at their job if their job wasn't complicated a thousandfold by a federal government that doesn't have a clue. And I think that that's a really bad combination. And we know that through the pandemic and through the amount of money that was printed and given away and supply chain issues, that was basically that that, that collection of stink was handed to the Bank of Canada, and they were told, well, as fast as possible, can you fix this? Mm-hmm. And you know, the economy is a wonderful thing, Roy, but it's not instantaneous, and it takes time. And so all of these changes that the bank are doing, they have to work through the system. And the government tied not one, but both hands behind their back. Yeah, and the OECD is not particularly confident about how we're going to be doing as an economy of advanced countries over the next 10 years and beyond. There's not much said well, about that should, either, right? And, and, and That's right. And not to interrupt, but why should they when the one thing that we could do really, really well yes, at sir. and exploit our comparative advantages in, we fail. All right. So we've been paying attention to what's been going on in Germany over the last couple of days as the, uh, the West and uh, NATO leaders, defense ministers, and their equivalencies have been talking about providing Ukraine with what it requires to continue its battle with Russia. And they're going to be getting some uh, air defense systems. They have uh, different uh, defensive weaponry and maybe some offensive weaponry as well headed their way. But what they haven't decided, sitting on their hands, hand-wringing actually, is what the Germans need, and that is leopard tanks. They would provide Ukraine, as I understand it, with what it requires to push the Russians back, maybe to pre-2014 invasion borders. Canada, by the way, has about 80 of these tanks, I understand, but a report that I read suggests only about half of them work. Why is it always that way with the Canadian forces? Why why does our military always have to scrounge and beg and hope? It's just a a national embarrassment. General Rick Hillier joins us, former chief of the defense staff, Canada's top military officer. General, it's always an honor. How are you, sir? Hi, Roy. I'm well, and thank you. I'm delighted to be on your show here this afternoon. Good to have you with us. Now, Canada's announced 200 Senator Armored Personnel Carriers are going to be shipped to Ukraine. I understand these are more for police operations than military operations. And 39 Armored Combat Support Vehicles, which were originally intended for the CAF, are also going to Ukraine. I don't know if that's what they asked for. They want tanks. General, how do you assess what we're doing, and how do you assess this hand-wringing that's going on or has been going on in Europe? Well, first of all, Canada is doing some pretty good things. I mean, those armored vehicles aside, they are not war winners. They're not going to change the flavor of the fight uh, and help Ukraine win their war. They will be useful. But Canada, I really like what Canada stepped up and did and say, hey, we're going to buy the NASA's air defense system, uh, a system for you and, and help you keep those Russian airplanes and Russian drones uh, off your back so they can't kill you. They can't see where you are and therefore use their artillery on you. That is a wonderful good, a wonderful thing. I like what we did with artillery and sending them guns, but not enough. And maybe that's because we don't have enough. And the ammunition, those are things that will help them win the war. But, you know, they need, really quickly, they need five things in Ukraine. 
fighting things to be a part of uh, of a winning strategy. Number one is they need some fighter planes. Number two is they need more air defense. Number three is they need more precision, long-range artillery. And then to to close with and kill the Russians and eject them from their country, they need main battle tanks of a, of a modern version. There are only really two in the world of the numbers that would be useful. That's the Leopard 2 tank made by Germany or the M1 tank made by the United States. And they need infantry, what we call infantry fighting vehicles, those vehicles that are they're, they're pretty pretty capable, almost like a tank, but they carry infantry soldiers. And when you work all of that together in one team with the air defense over it, uh, it's a war winner. And something like the Leopard tanks and and a Bradley or a Martyr fighting vehicle or like the CV-90 that the Swedes just said they would send 50 in, that kind of thing could help Ukraine win this war, throw the Russians out, and establish their security uh, for the longer term. So they do need uh, more things than what we've been able to give them. I give Canada a thumbs up on the air defense and the artillery piece. The armored vehicles are nice. They're not going to help Ukraine win the war. Other things we've been doing are good, too. So I'll give Canada a, a thumbs up on those two specific things, the air defense and the artillery. That was the $400 million purchase from the United States, right? That's correct. Yeah. Um, why do you suppose, General, it's such a such a reach, particularly for the Germans, it appears, to provide either permission for other countries to give their leopard tanks to Ukraine or for the Germans to sign off on these kinds of moves? Why is it so difficult for the Germans to make that decision? Some people are saying because they've had too cozy a relationship with Putin for too long. Is that fair? Uh, Roy, I, I'm not sure. I don't know uh, why the Germans either want to give their leopard tanks or want to sign off on other nations. I think if I knew that, I'd be the most popular individual in the world because everybody would be asking me. I watched Lloyd Austin uh, speak to the media after the conference in Ramstein, uh, Lloyd Austin uh, being the Secretary of Defense for the United States, and I thought I could see in his face visible frustration uh, with Germany's approach. And I was talking this uh, over with a bunch of former soldiers and leaders, uh, kind of like myself, and, and somebody said to me, you know, sir, we should remember that we spent 75 years plus trying to make sure Germany never ever started another war or was in another war, and maybe we were successful. and We've reduced Germany to, to such an extent that it's not in their DNA anymore to even help a, a, a democratic sovereign nation like Ukraine during their darkest hour. And, and so everybody is frustrated. There are two, two tank fleets in the world that could meet the requirement that would allow Ukraine to be successful. One is that Leopard 2 fleet, uh, which Canada... I think we bought 100, and then we had some specialty models, too. It's just over 100. Uh, Canada has some, and the other tank is the M1. But I actually think, you know, the Americans are doing so much, maybe it's time the rest of the world step up, and therefore the Leopard 2 tank is the one that uh, should be sent to Ukraine. And a variety of countries, I think, stand by to send them if Germany will give the permission. And then, of course, Germany produces spare parts for Leopard 2s. Uh, and so they would be required to keep those tanks running uh, during what will still be a long fight. General Hilder, I remember speaking with you um, shortly after the uh, Russians invaded Ukraine, and you were all in favor of um, air defense or at least uh, air cover for Ukraine by the NATO uh, air forces. We know that never happened. But do you have a sense that the Ukrainian military still has what it needs as far as just in numbers of personnel fighting uh, soldiers available to be able to defeat Russia if they get the equipment they require. Oh, absolutely they do, boy. I mean, President Zelensky, in his orders to his command team, has made, uh, has made it very clear they're, they're building a million-person force to not only win this war, but then guarantee their security down the road for the next 10, 20, 40 years out. They have the people. 
the people that I met there when I was there, the people that I meet in my travels and that come to North America and Canada and the U.S. where I get a chance to, to, to have discussions with them, they are absolutely determined that they are going to defend their, country, their, their families, their towns, and their country, and they're not going to rest uh, until the Russians are gone. Uh, President Zelensky said, you know, no negotiation until we get Russians out of, out of uh, Ukraine. Uh, Zelushny, the commander-in-chief, runs the armed forces, said, you know, the, the Ukrainian armed forces would not agree to a negotiated settlement leaving the Russians in. They're determined. They've got the numbers of people. Uh, they're getting the intelligence feed. Their, their innovation, their ingenuity, and bringing in new systems and applying them in, in a way that actually just strikes fear into the heart of the Russians is incredible. I'm not sure there are many professional armies in the West that can perform that well, but they do need the equipment. If they're going to go on the offensive, they're going to need uh, those tanks, and they're going to need those infantry fighting vehicles. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.